0: My workforce is getting a little older, it's getting a little stiffer. Many families who pick produce want something different for their children, and that's leading to a big policy challenge, not enough farm workers. For Sunday, July 30th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The new movie Oppenheimer is bringing the creation of the atomic bomb back into focus. We hear from the people who experienced that first nuclear test, and suffered health problems because of it.
1: Some people thought it was the end of the world, and they started praying like crazy because they thought the sun's coming up on the wrong side of the world.
0: And in Enlighten Me, a researcher looks at a possible link between religion and combating addiction and depression.
2: As I started and opened up saying I'm going to speak today about spirituality and mental health, about 10 people got up and walked out.
0: First news headlines.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Russia says it downed more Ukrainian drones targeting the capital of Moscow today with no injuries reported. But as NPR's Charles Maines reports, a growing pattern of drone attacks on the city is raising questions about the effectiveness of Moscow's air defenses.
4: According to Russia's defense ministry, radio jamming equipment brought down the Ukrainian drones before they could carry out what the ministry called an attempted terrorist attack. Two drones fell on high-rises in Moscow's premier business district, damaging the facades of two office towers. Another drone was downed over a high-end residential area on the outskirts of the city. Ukraine neither denied nor confirmed involvement, but welcomed the news. The incidents were the latest in a spate of apparent Ukrainian attacks that have shown Russia's capital in particular remains vulnerable to drones. In recent months, drones have hit city residential buildings, a commercial area near the Russian Defense Ministry, and even inside the Kremlin walls. Charles Maines, NPR News.
3: A bomb tore through a political rally in northwestern Pakistan today in a district that borders Afghanistan. Officials say at least 40 people were killed. More than 130 were wounded. That death toll is expected to rise. There was no immediate claim of responsibility, but the Pakistani Taliban group condemned the suicide attack. And Pierce Dia Hadid has more.
5: Videos shared on social media showed one man cradling another and weeping. Dozens more men crowded into a local health facility, apparently looking for wounded and slayed loved ones. Officials tried to keep order. <laughs> the blast took place in Bajor, a remote border district. There's been a step up in militant attacks in that rugged belt of territory since the Taliban seized power of neighbouring Afghanistan nearly two years ago. Many of those attacks have been claimed by a Pakistani offshoot of the Taliban, known as the TTP. But the political rally was for a prominent legislator who is known for his pro-Taliban views. Dear Hadid, NPR News.
3: On Wall Street this week, Apple and Amazon are among the many companies that will update investors on how they performed in the last quarter, and there will be new data on the labor market. And Fierce David Guerra reports those numbers will be closely scrutinized ahead of the Federal Reserve's next meeting.
6: After the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again by a quarter point, Fed Chair Jerome Powell emphasized how much economic data he and his colleagues will see between then and the Fed's next meeting in September. There will be new inflation numbers and two jobs reports. The Labor Department will release the first one on Friday, jobs data for the month of July. And while there's new optimism the Fed will be able to win its fight against high inflation without triggering a recession, economists will be on the lookout for a lower-than-expected jobs number or a jump in the
4: unemployment rate. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
3: And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Karpilio in Boston. The National Weather Service has confirmed that an EF-1 tornado Touchdown last night at the Easton-Foxborough town line. The estimated winds reached 105 miles per hour and it traveled about 400 yards. Experts also say straight line winds or a microburst caused wind damage in Brockton, East Bridgewater and Easton. Vice President Kamala Harris made a surprise visit to Roxbury Community College before speaking at the NAACP convention in Boston last night. She appeared at a town hall to discuss voting rights and the presidential election. Harris accused Republicans of dodging the serious issues facing black Americans.
7: For example, policies that are about prioritizing diversity. And they try to distract us from that by instead suggesting that the slave people of America benefited from slavery.
4: She called on the group to register voters and organize for the next election. The Massachusetts legislature could vote tomorrow on a state budget, a month into fiscal 2024. House and Senate lawmakers have been trying to reach agreement on differing proposed plans. On Friday, negotiators said agreement had been reached in principle and they'd work over the weekend to finalize details. Within a couple of hours now, five Christmas tree shops in Massachusetts will close for the final time. The stores are in Natick, North Dartmouth, Orleans, Pembroke, and West Dennis. Other locations will close in the coming weeks. The Massachusetts-based chain filed for bankruptcy earlier this year. The Red Sox are trailing the Giants 1-0 in the fourth inning in San Francisco in the final game of a three-game series. In the forecast for tonight, mostly clear skies with temperatures in the 60s. Sunny, upper 70s tomorrow, and then mostly sunny, upper 70s Tuesday, although Tuesday there is just a slight chance of a shower. Right now in Boston, it is 77 degrees.
2: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making
8: opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
0: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Paula Mendoza's parents are migrants from Mexico, and they're farm workers in south-central Washington state.
9: I grew up with both of my parents always working pretty much seven days a week sometimes, and that's pretty much all I've ever seen them do.
0: She saw the toll it took on them, and from the time she was young, her parents were clear about one thing. They did not want their kids to follow in their footsteps.
9: They were working so hard to provide us with what they didn't have, so we didn't have to end up like them and working in the fields every day, all day.
0: This summer, Paula is working on the same farm as her mother, but she's not there to pick fruits or vegetables. She's a research intern on a project to improve irrigation systems. This fall, she'll enter her senior year of college. She's studying to be a teacher. At the farm, her boss is Alan Schreiber. He says Paula's family is pretty representative of farmworker families in the U.S., and it's left him worried about where he'll find enough workers to keep his farm going. My workforce is a little like me. It's getting a little older. It's getting a little stiffer. And none of our farm workers want their children to be farm workers. In this week's Sunday cover story, because so many families are making the same choices as Paula's, there is a labor shortage on farms in the U.S. And that has implications for all of us who enjoy fresh fruits and vegetables. The Mexican workers who came to the U.S. decades ago to pick crops are aging, and their children and grandchildren are finding opportunities in other sectors, and that raises a lot of questions about who is supposed to replace them. I spoke with NPR's Jimena Bustillo, who reports on food and farm policy, and NPR's Andrea Hsu, who covers labor. This summer, they visited some farms to see how this is playing out. I asked Jimena to start by telling me where they went.
9: We went to Washington State, which is famous for its apples, cherries, and hops. And we specifically traveled to the Yakima Valley. In these towns, you can see how dominant agriculture is to the communities. Right next to a playground, there's an apple processing plant. And right next to a school, there's a hops field. Mm -hmm. We were there specifically at the start of cherry season. And we got to get up right before sunrise as the harvest was just starting. Excuse Excuse me you can hear the workers moving fast (laughs) carrying big ladders and they get paid based on how much they pick and the season is short only a couple weeks or months but one of the problems we kept hearing is these kinds of farms don't have enough workers
0: okay so andrea who is doing the picking then
7: it's a majority latino workforce Mm -hmm. and you can hear spanish spoken on most of these farms but beyond that you can break down the workforce into two different groups there are those workers who have been in the US for a long time and settled in the area. Some of them are documented, some are not. And then there are these guest workers who have been brought to the US for the harvest season through a federal visa program mm-hmm. called the H-2A program. And nationally, we have seen a huge increase in these guest workers. And in a place like Washington state, the growth has just exploded over the past decade by you know, something like 500%.
0: That is a very large increase. What's going on there?
7: Well, as you mentioned, farmers say they cannot find enough workers to bring in the harvest. It's actually their top concern. And, Scott, you know, this wasn't always a problem. Decades ago, there used to be whole families of Mexican farm workers who would migrate around the U.S. Mm -hmm. They'd start in Texas. They'd make their way up through California, eventually make it to Washington state. But after 9-11, crossing the U.S.-Mexico border became much riskier. And then gradually over time, instead of moving throughout the year, some of these families started to settle in one place. These migrant workers, they put their kids in school. They started seeing other opportunities for them.
9: And
0: I guess that makes sense. That's like the the archetypal American experience, right? You come as an immigrant, you work uh, in one field, and you hope your kids advance and move forward and do something different and keep growing.
7: Yes, exactly. And we met a really interesting woman whose life story kind of explains the labor shortages we're seeing now. Um, Dolores Gonzalez works for the local school district as a migrant advocate. Her job is to make sure migrant kids are coming to school, but for most of her life she was a farm worker. She was born in Arizona to parents who were farm workers. She traveled around with her parents and grandparents, actually, migrating from place to place. Remember, this was in the 1960s when we could miss school and work and and I could still pick cherries and everything at the age of nine. She grew up married another farm worker and they raised their own kids you know kind of the way they were raised taking them to the cherry fields sticking them in a cherry bin all day long when they were young (laughs) and you know she was really proud of the work that she did but she knew she wanted something different for her own kids. They would still work the fields with us in the summer but at the same time I planted the seed since they were little that they were going to go to college. And then when her oldest was about to graduate from high school, Dolores said something clicked. She realized she wanted something different for herself too. I'm tired of the cycle. I want to break it. And at the age of 40, Scott, Dolores applied to college And now she and all three of her kids work in education.
0: I really like Dolores.
7: Yeah, she's quite a woman.
0: Uh, You you mentioned that she works for the school district. Tell me about the students that she works with. What are they doing? Are they working in the fields right now?
7: Well, some of them do. As Dolores pointed out to us, some of these families only have one car. So there's no public transportation. So if you're a teenager and you want to work, you have no choice but to go with your parents or your aunt and uncle to the fields. And, of course, for anyone who's undocumented, it's harder to get jobs elsewhere. But many of the young people we met uh, were born in the U.S., and many of them are finding other opportunities. We met one of Dolores' former students, Jasmine Corona. She used to go out with her dad to Montana every summer to pick cherries, but he always made sure she didn't miss school. Mm -hmm. And in the end, he gave her this choice. He told me one
9: day, I already taught you how to work in the fields outside under the sun. Now it's your time. You got to decide if you want to continue here.
7: And Scott, it really wasn't a very hard decision for Jasmine in the end.
9: I've seen my dad all his life working in the fields, and I've seen
7: him really tired. So I want to try something new. And Jasmine is now in college. She wants to become a teacher and actually work at her old high school so a lot of
0: these stories make a lot of sense on the individual level right you can see why somebody is making that decision you could see why a family would be really happy with that decision but it leads to this broader problem of if these were the people doing a lot of the work picking these fruits and vegetables that we all rely on and eat who's going to be filling in that space and jimena i'm assuming. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm assuming that this is something that the government is thinking about and trying to set policy to fix.
9: It is definitely something the government is thinking about and has been for some time, which takes us back to that H-2A visa program. For decades, the federal government has given farms the option of bringing in these guest workers uh, from other countries to do the picking. And that's because this program has a couple rules. So first, any employer has to prove that they couldn't hire someone currently living in the U.S. first before they ask for a visa and bring in someone else. There's also a special wage that has to be paid. And in Washington, that's almost $18 an hour. Employers must also provide housing and transportation and pay for all these things, which means farmers often complain about this cost and especially the rising cost of labor. They say that's one of the biggest contributors to high food prices right now. But while there's a really strong lobby for more visas and to make this more accessible and cheaper, labor groups are pumping the brakes on that.
0: Why is that? I mean, I hear on one hand, higher pay than it it would be otherwise. A lot of standards. These are things that labor generally likes. Uh, What's the issue?
9: Well, it's really difficult to oversee and regulate this program. So these visas specifically tie workers to their employers, which already means they're going to be less likely to speak up. And we've seen the worst of the worst cases. One example is Operation Blooming Onion. This was investigated by the Justice Department and by the FBI out in Georgia. And it found what they called slavery-like conditions, you know, workers that were forced to work on farms that they didn't even even have visas for, made to dig onions out with their bare hands, some workers even died. And if federal investigators want to investigate something, finding these workers, they themselves say that it's a challenge.
0: So what happens next with this program? Because you're laying out a lot of things that people like and you're laying out a lot of areas of concern.
9: Right. So because this is a federal visa program, any changes have to come from the administration or Congress. But there, of course, have been some difficulties in getting this through. One effort has been a bill called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. It would help some farmers by expanding this program and freezing wages. But it also satisfied some labor advocacy concerns by increasing rights and even providing a pathway to legalization for undocumented workers that have been working in the United States for for years, but because this deals indirectly with immigration, negotiations have been in a stalemate for years. One Republican that is leading this effort, though, is Representative Dan Newhouse, and he's actually from the Yakima Valley himself. And he has introduced this bill, but he faces opposition from hardline Republicans that want to see something done with border security before addressing ag labor. But Newhouse says that ag labor needs to be addressed now because it's a direct risk to food security.
1: If we don't have an adequate labor force for
0: the agricultural industry, that's in jeopardy. A lot of concerns being raised from a lot of different places, though. But there's still this massive need for more workers to be out there in the fields. Is there a consensus that for all of its flaws, this program is the best way to get people in those places to do that work?
9: There's not always a consensus because, again, labor groups say that this program just needs to be reformed point blank before some sort of expansion happens. But there's just so many challenges in what reform looks like. Who does the reform if Congress can get a bill through or if the Biden administration can move forward with changes? One of the biggest losses of this delayed negotiation has been that prolonged legalization for workers. Here's one farm worker I spoke to that could have benefited from that. She says that ciudad. she feels bad about it, but she's going to keep going because this is her home and she's going to keep going even though they're living in the shadows. Because what else? What else can you do? It's a really complicated and personal issue for many. But as Andrea mentioned earlier, the workforce is changing naturally with or without laws, and that will eventually impact the way everyone like you and me get our food.
0: That's Amanda Bestia, who, along with Andrea Shu, is here talking about reporting they did in Washington state about labor shortages and farms. Thanks so much.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Scott.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
4: It's 77 degrees at 518. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpillio. Thanks so much for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. And from the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. We're
5: funded by you, our listeners. And by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org.
4: Mostly clear skies overnight with temps in the 60s, mostly sunny upper 70s tomorrow. Right now, it is 77 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst
3: with these headlines. In Pakistan, an explosion at a political rally near the Afghan border has left at least 40 people dead, more than 130 injured. No one's claimed responsibility, but the Pakistan Taliban condemned the suicide attack. The Teamsters union meets tomorrow to discuss the new tentative five-year collective bargaining agreement with UPS. Union members will start voting this Thursday, and that lasts until August 22nd. The contract includes pay hikes, improved benefits, and employee protections. If they vote no, they could strike. And there are a record number of sea turtle nests along a a nine-and-a-half-mile stretch of Palm Beach, Florida. Officials say they hope they'll find nearly 30,000 nests by November when the season ends. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The world's very first atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico in 1945 in an experiment known as the Trinity Test. The movie Oppenheimer focuses on the scientists who developed the bomb, but hundreds of local New Mexicans were harmed by the test's fallout. Now, some of them are fighting for compensation from the federal government. New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Outside In, takes a look at this hidden chapter of history. Host Nate Hedgie takes it from here.
1: Yeah, so we're at the Pino Gate here. I'm just going to come out with you and sure. get some sound of you opening the gate.
6: That's Paul Pino. We had just pulled into his family's modest ranch, a 10-minute drive from his hometown of Carrizozo. It's a dusty, sun-blasted crossroads of a place in central New Mexico, about 40 miles due east of the Trinity site. Did
1: you notice there's tumbleweed stuck in your, in your bumper? Yeah.
6: <laughs> Built some
1: character. Exactly. I guess
6: I guess Paul is 68 years old. He was wearing a white cowboy hat and a Canadian tuxedo, denim shirt, blue jeans, sneakers. He's got a second career as a musician, but he grew up on this ranch. It's been in his family since 1892.
1: And so this is all really good grassland, like the land behind us. There's also this grass, they call it sacaton, or and another word for it was carrizo, and that's what the where Carrizozo got its name was carrizozo, like a place where there's a lot of this kind of grass, carrizo see, it's that real reedy, tough grass. like I was telling you, everything around here is tough.
6: New Mexico is beautiful, but it can also be unforgiving. Paul's dad was struck by lightning. His family would dodge rattlesnakes and flash floods, driving cattle 10 miles a day on foot. The cicadas are so loud here that they sound like saw blades.
1: Even even the the grass would cut you. I remember we were walking up that mountain one time and I was about three or four. And there was a really pretty piece of grass and I said, like, wow how pretty and I grabbed it and I pulled it like that and it just cut me like a razor blade.
4: As you said this is a tough place.
1: Yeah. And so the people and the animals and stuff that, that have lived here for this long are tough. You know and, and for some of them nothing could kill them but radiation.
6: It was the early morning of July 16th, 1945. Scientists and military personnel were wearing thick welding goggles to protect their eyes. They were hunkered in bunkers three miles away from the gadget. That was the code name for the atomic bomb. It was sitting atop a tower about 100 feet above the ground in a sparse valley of New Mexico, known as the jornada de muerto, the dead man's journey. It was the middle of monsoon season, and had been pouring rain and windy all night. The air was alive with the sound of desert toads chirping. And within a fraction of a second, the world changed. the same. Here's J. Robert Oppenheimer, the lead scientist for the project, in an interview years later. Few
3: people laughed, few people cried,
9: most people were silent.
4: I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds.
1: Some people thought it was the end of the world, and they started praying like crazy because they thought the sun's coming up on the wrong side of the world.
6: The bomb had detonated at precisely 529 a.m. The light was seen as far away as El Paso, Texas, some 130 miles to the south. Paul Pino's family ranch outside of Carrizozo was only about a quarter of that distance away. Paul has heard stories of children playing in radioactive ash as it fell.
1: They said, wow, it's snowing in July, they were catching what they thought were flakes on their tongue and rubbing it on their face and stuff like that. Boys were trying to make snowballs out of it, so there must have been a lot of it.
6: Government reports back this up. Cattle were found in the vicinity with burns and hair loss on their backs. Scientists knew the bomb would produce radiation, but how much, they weren't sure. So the military stationed teams in nearby towns to test the air. They used portable Geiger counters, which if you've ever seen any nuclear disaster movie, you'll know what they are. These teams found high levels of radioactivity more than 100 miles from the blast site. In Carazozo, it was literally off the charts. The Geiger counters didn't go any higher. Scientists and government officials discussed evacuating the town. They even had cattle trucks lined up outside the city, just in case. But as the cloud of radioactive particles passed and settled, the Geiger counters calmed down. So they scrapped the plan and left.
1: Yeah, so those mountains there, the atomic bomb was just on the other side of them, on those mountains over that way, the purple ones.
6: Paul's mom and older brother were sleeping at the ranch when the bomb was tested. At the time, they lived in a small homesteading cabin known as a hokal house. It's made of wooden poles and clay with a rusted tin roof.
1: They'd build what they needed to get by, then they'd have a kid, and then they'd build another room, then have another kid, then build another room.
6: Chicano and indigenous farmers in southwestern New Mexico have been building houses like this, relying on the land for hundreds of years. Was't much different in 1945. They hunted, raised cattle, grew vegetable gardens, and they drank water from cisterns. They' are these big underground vases that collect rainwater from the roof during storms. Paul wanted to show me one.
1: Wow, did
6: I. Nice, Inside, great. it was cavernous, the size of a bedroom and the kind of place you don't want to fall
1: into.) Just, one, two, check, baby, <laughs> check, baby.
6: Tell me again, what did the water taste like?
1: Oh, it couldn't couldn't taste any better. It tasted like really light, really pure. Like even the water that I drink at my house in Civilization, you know, around Albuquerque, you can taste like a little minerals in it or something like that. The minerals really mess up the shower heads, everything, you know. But the rainwater tasted so good.
6: And so your family was living here in this small home, drinking water yeah. from the cistern and eating food that was grown out here. How do you think that they, they got radiation poisoning?
1: Through the water, through the milk, through the eggs, through the chickens that they'd, that they'd slaughter and eat, they do hunting, they get it through the deer, the rabbits.
6: Radiation is all around us. You're exposed to a little bit every time you get an X-ray or fly in an airplane. Every time you eat a banana, you consume a little radioactive potassium. And that's okay. Humans have adapted to live with low levels of daily exposure. A lot of radiation comes from unstable versions of elements called isotopes. Isotopes are atoms that have extra particles they can't quite handle. And every now and again, one of those particles goes flying off like a button on a pair of too tight jeans. Another way to think of it is that radiation is essentially energy. That's why acute radiation poisoning looks a lot like a horrible burn. A sunburn, in fact, is a form of ultraviolet radiation damage. But there's a difference between acute radiation exposure and radioactive contamination. These isotopes from the Trinity test, they drifted down onto roofs and got washed into cisterns. They seasoned the grass that cattle ate and worked their way into the cow's mammary glands. That's not gonna register very high in a Geiger counter, but if you're eating and drinking those isotopes, they're still firing off particles inside of your body. They can penetrate your organs, and if you're exposed to a large amount of radiation, they can literally mutate your DNA. And over time, years or decades, they can lead to radiogenic cancers that grow inside your stomach, your bones, your thyroid. And you'd never have any idea it was happening.
1: And we can look at some other things in here. Yeah, they're both there, right? This photo, Uh, That's my mom and that's my brother, Greg
6: paul 's older brother Greg used to drink milk by the gallon when he was a kid at the ranch. Paul found a photo of him in his house. Do you remember when you first found out that he had he had cancer?
1: Yeah, they called us and and he said that that they had detected cancer, but he says he says i'm in denial, and he's just like joking around and I was just like I just like laughed along with him you know so my family told me my brothers and sisters they said. Uh, Said, we want you to take some time off work and go out there and see how things really are and i went out there and i saw right away you know i i called him and told him you better get out here you know within the, within the next couple of weeks dying through through cancer and through suffering is a terrible thing
6: Two studies from the Los Alamos National Laboratory and the National Institutes of Cancer showed that there were high levels of radioactive material in the Trinity fallout zone as late as the 1980s, and that hundreds of people probably got cancer from it. Greg died from stomach cancer when he was 68 years old. Paul's mom, she died from bone cancer. His sister had multiple brain tumors. Another had thyroid cancer. It's been more than 75 years since the world's first atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico. More than 75 years since we dropped two of those bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, killing at least 110,000 people, likely many more. Ever since then, the United States has been coming to terms with how to address that history. In 2016, Barack Obama was the first sitting president in history to visit the memorial in Hiroshima. But the United States has never really addressed the fallout from Trinity. A CDC report found that the military knew about its dangers to the people who live nearby, but they were worried about endless lawsuits, so they brushed the whole thing under the rug. But over the past decade, Paul and the other downwinders have been fighting for accountability. And they don't want a memorial or a presidential visit. They want justice.
1: If somebody harmed your family, you would never stop trying to get justice for them. If somebody killed your daughter or your mom or your brother, even if it was by accident, you wouldn't stop until you have had justice. You wouldn't stop until you had acknowledgement. You wouldn't, you wouldn't stop until they told the truth.
6: Back at the Pino Ranch near Carrizozo, Paul was sitting at the kitchen table surrounded by pictures of his family and holding a nylon guitar. He wanted to play me a song written by another downwinder, Luisa Lopez.
1: Her husband, Ricardo, is a friend of mine. He helped us with the downwinders for years, and he died of cancer a couple of years ago. And so she wrote this song. Out there on the Hornada, they bombed the land to hell. They said, it doesn't matter, Aki, no one is living, we won't cause any problems.
0: On Thursday, the U.S. Senate voted to expand compensation for people who suffered adverse health impacts from the Trinity test fallout. The language was part of a broader defense spending bill, which would still need to pass the House.
1: Underneath the
0: you can hear the full version of this story in the podcast Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. That's outside slash in.
1: It ain't over till we win We'll come back again and again On the side of the Santos We'll fight for our friends It ain't over till we win It ain't over till
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Joni Mitchell is one of the most influential artists of the last 50 years, but she had stayed out of the spotlight for the past decade, until last year when she held her first live performance in 22 years at the Newport Folk Festival. Now that performance is being turned into a live album, Joni Mitchell at Newport. NPR music contributor Annie Zelensky has this review.
7: Yesterday the child came out
10: to wonder Joni Mitchell is a singer, songwriter, and guitarist who's had a extensive and diverse career dating back to the 1960s. She started off in the folk movement, and she had an aneurysm in 2015, and she was pretty much um, at home. Her debut performance at the festival was in 1967, and this was before she had a record deal. She was still a new singer-songwriter, and it was sort of one of her, basically her first major public appearances. Two years later, she performed at the festival, and she had released two records, and she was really kind of on her way up. The fact that she was kind of returning to a place that was so significant to her in terms of launching her career, I think, uh, is one thing. The fact that it was live, I think, is another thing, because when she performs live, they take on new forms. They take on new life, and they take on new shape.
1: And the season...
10: The Circle Game is one of Joni Mitchell's first sort of you would say breakthrough songs. The fact that she performed it at Newport in 2022 I thought was exceedingly poignant. Um, The song itself is kind of you know looking back at the passage of time and what happens with life's milestones and it's a very kind of reflective meditative song. Um, It's very very in character for her and she ended uh, her performance at Newport in 2022 with this as a woman, you know, decades later. And there was just something, I hate to use a cliche, but there was something kind of full circle about revisiting that song as someone who had decades of life experience um, under her belt, basically.
3: Oh, you in my blood
4: like holy wine. You're so bitter and so sweet so sweet. Oh, I could drink
1: a case
7: of you.
10: A Case of You is, I think, one of her most significant songs and it's just a beautiful song about tortured love and uh, you know being with someone and intoxicating love and she sang that at newport and it was just her performance was just really beautiful she had a very low velvety voice over over the years her voice has changed and evolved in really special intriguing ways and her performance at newport especially kind of revealed that you know she sang some of the these very poignant lines that were um You know, she it was it was honestly it was chills inducing. She sang this line, I would still be on my feet twice in a row. First she was a little bit tentative, and then she sang it again with more firm conviction. And I would still be on my feet.
0: I'd still be on my feet.
10: Knowing what we all know about her. Um, having some health care issues and, you know, having to have a long road back to the stage. There was something really beautiful about her kind of making that um, declaration saying, I'm still here. I'm going to be on my feet. You know, I'm still alive and making music.
0: That was NPR music contributor Annie Zelensky. Joni Mitchell at Newport is out now. This is NPR News.
4: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Korpilio. Thanks so much for spending part of your Sunday with us. Turn your old car into new news.
0: Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at
4: WBUR.org cars. WBUR's Radio Boston would like your feedback on what you hear during the show each day. Tell us what you like, what you don't, and what else you listen to. Take the Radio Boston survey at WBUR.org slash survey. That's WBUR.org slash survey. And thanks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
1: Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park
4: Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly, beginning August 4th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Clear 60s overnight, mostly sunny tomorrow, upper 70s. 77 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst
3: with these headlines. The leaders of West African nations have authorized the use of force against Niger if that country does not reinstate its president within a week. Last week, members of the military removed the democratically elected president in a coup. Last winter, a record eight homeless people died from exposure in Alaska, and now the mayor of Anchorage wants to give them a one-way plane ticket to a warmer climate. More than 40 percent of Alaska's homeless are indigenous peoples, and critics say Dave Bronson's unfunded plan is unsensitive. And at the weekend box office, Barbie piled on the money, taking in an estimated $93 million in its second weekend. Oppenheimer came in second with $46 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and Rachel Martin is back again for another <laughs> enlightening. Hey, Rachel.
5: Come on. It's a good thing. Okay, so— I'm um, very happy
0: you're here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
5: I know this about you. I know that you were raised Catholic. Yes. But I do not know if you consider yourself to, to be a spiritual person today.
0: I think so. Yeah, I still am active in my religion. And I think uh, I would like to think at least that I'm a very spiritual person. It's something I find myself thinking about a lot.
5: All right. So I ask because according to Dr. Lisa Miller of Columbia University, that makes you far less likely to run into all kinds of health problems, mental health problems and physical health problems. She yeah. has done all this research about neuroscience and spirituality. And the conclusions are really provocative. She says that people who identify as spiritual or religious will have far less likelihood of dealing with addiction in their life hmm. and and be far less likely to suffer from depression.
0: I feel like I hear that and my brain is instantly split between that makes a lot of sense and I'm very skeptical of that claim.
5: Right, so I was two. Um, I identify as a spiritual person, but even so, I'm like, this is real, I mean, what is the science backing this up, right? What is the data? How how do you you measure that, yeah. What are the metrics she's actually using? So before we got to the science though, she told me this story and I'm gonna give you the background. It was the mid-90s, and Dr. Miller, Lisa, was in the early stages of her career. She was working at this residential mental health facility in New York. And after she'd been there for a few months, it was time for Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in the Jewish tradition, considered the most significant of the Jewish religious holidays. And one of the older male patients who was there, he had severe bipolar disorder. He asked if there was going to be anything happening at the facility, anything to mark Yom Kippur. The doctor in charge shrugged his shoulders, said, no, no service planned. So the patient walked out, and Lisa's looking on. She could see he was disappointed by this news, and she saw an opportunity.
2: So I approached the unit chief and said, listen, I'm certainly not a rabbi, but I've been to, you know, two and a half decades of Yom Kippur services. I'd be happy to facilitate if that might be okay with you. Sure, if you want. So... I show up on Yom Kippur, and the patients had shown up early to the kitchen, which was to be our sanctuary. The fluorescent lights were quite strong, and we crowded around the linoleum table. And there was an extraordinary feeling of specialness. Mm. And as we started the prayers that we all knew from our childhood and our adolescence, joining together, saying in Hebrew, the prayers of Yom Kippur, I looked over and noticed that as the gentleman with bipolar was davening, he could not have been further from explosive. He was holding our group in the cadence of the prayers, and we were actually following him. I took a pause and I said, I feel so grateful to be here today in our Yom Kippur ceremony. Would anyone like to say anything? We went around the table, and the first person to speak was the very otherwise withdrawn woman with recurrent depression. She said, you know, I always knew on Yom Kippur we could ask for forgiveness. But sitting here now with you all, I'm aware that we can be forgiven. God can forgive us. And she looked liberated. As I looked around the table on that Yom Kippur at the patients who'd chosen to be at our kitchen service, whatever their symptoms had been yesterday, in that moment, they were free. In that moment, they were free of suffering. They were free of the characteristic patterns that had dragged them down in a way that was equal and opposite to their main symptoms. Hmm. And so I thought a mental health system minus spirituality made no sense. And that became my life's work to understand the place of spirituality in renewal, in recovery, and resilience and to put this in the language of science
5: so what happened when you brought these kinds of questions to your to your peers to the other people in your scientific community like when you said for the first time hey I think we need to look at the effect of, of spirituality on on mental health,
2: what did people say to you? Well, the vast majority were very respectful, nodded, and didn't pick up the thread. Some of them were, said, that's not psychology, that's not psychiatry. And in fact, I remember early on giving a Grand Rounds presentation. And as I started and opened up, saying, I'm going to speak today about a body of data using nationally representative samples on spirituality and mental health. You know, all the gold standard methods that every other Grand Rounds used as well. About, I don't know, five, ten people got up and walked out. It was absolutely not of interest.
5: So using the gold standard, what did what yes. did that mean in terms of the experiments you were running and the, and the studies and the data right. you were
2: collecting? How did right. you make sure that it would hold water in the scientific community? So if I were to characterize the first five years of my investigation, I would say I used the data sets that everyone else knew and trusted. I used the measures that everyone else knew and trusted. And for every nine variables, I only asked one new question, which was, what's the impact of spirituality on all else? A DSM diagnosis of depression, a symptom scale showing a moderate to severe level of depressive symptoms, and the findings we're jaw-dropping. I mean, yeah, absolutely me. jaw-dropping. The magnitude of the protective benefit of personal spirituality, simply my personal spirituality is highly important to me, mm-hmm. is it 80% decreased relative risk for DSM, diagnosis of addiction, addiction to drugs, addiction to alcohol. Wait, wait, wait. So someone who self-identifies as having a meaningful
5: spiritual life is 80% less
2: likely to get addicted to drugs or alcohol? Than someone who is a standard deviation below the mean and would say, I don't really know what you're talking about. Yes. Wow.
5: And, and how can you prove that it's, that it's a spiritual life that's doing that and not some external factor? Because you heard this from other critics too. Some of your peers were like, well, you can't attribute that to
2: spirituality. That's gotta be some other social conditioning. Well, that's a very important point because in every study we controlled for all of the usual interpretations that really this is about social support, that really this is about, you know, having resources. So we plugged into our equation every other possible explanation that was generally taken in mental health to explain the road to depression. And nonetheless, it actually turned out that the more high risk we are, the more that there's stress in our lives, the more that we might be genetically at risk for depression, the greater the impact of spirituality as a source of resilience, as preventative against major depression. What does that look like in the brain? One of the most beautiful findings in my 20 years as an investigator has been an MRI study conducted together with our colleagues at Yale Medical School. We looked at people of many different faith traditions, and the first finding was that there is one neuro seat of transcendent perception and we share it. Now there's human variability of course and we can strengthen components. How are you actually doing that with people? Are you, are you asking your subjects
5: to pray or to, what are the spiritual inputs that are going into them
2: so you can measure it on their brains? The very specific prompt was tell us about a time where you felt a deep connection to God, your higher power, the source of life and as they told their story, we recorded them, and it was then played back in their ears that very moment, that profound moment for them, while they were inside the scanner.
5: Ah. They heard themselves recounting. They
2: heard their themselves spiritual it experience. Was tailor-made to ah. their own moment. And you saw their brains light up when they were oh, yes. connecting they, to these memories. The bonding network comes up online just as when we were held in the arms of our parents or grandparents. When you
5: say the bonding network, you can literally yeah. see that in a brain. Like the the brain will respond to spiritual stimuli in the same way that that uh, a hug from from a family member when you're a baby would precisely, show up. precisely. Wow. Can you tell me how that manifested in in the real world? I'm thinking about this anecdote you include in the book about a client of yours, a a girl named
2: Ileana. Mm. Ileana adored her father. I mean, he was the sun and the moon and the stars to her. They were so close. And one night, two men who her father knew came into his corner store, robbed him, and murdered him. And she was... Devastated. I mean, this was a grief that was so deep. One day, Eliana, come in. She skips into my office. There's a levity and joy. She's hopping along. She plops into the seat. Dr. Miller, you're never going to believe this. I said, tell me. She said, well, my cousin and my cousin's girlfriend chaperoned me so I could go to a party. And I met the most wonderful boy. And we talked so long. It must have been... 20 minutes, and you're never going to believe this. He was so polite. He was so handsome. He was so kind. And I said, well, that's wonderful. She said, but here's the best part, yes, what his name is. His name is Horatio, we'll say. Well, that was the same un, very unusual name that, of course, was held by her father. Hmm. Don't you see? I said, you tell me. <laughs> My father sent him, my father is looking out after me. And from that day, she moved from 10 to 9 to 8 to 9 to 10. She was in the world of the living. What changed everything for Ileana was the awareness that her father walked with her. She maintained a deep transcendent relationship with her father as most people around the world do, whether you're speaking of Day of the Dead in Mexico or ancestor worship in parts of Asia, Ileana trusted her deep inner knowing that it was far too improbabilistic to have happened by chance, that this very rare name held both by this new boy and her father could possibly mean nothing. But But Can I ask, Lisa, what mm -hmm. are you thinking as you hear this? I mean, are you thinking that is
5: just a crazy coincidence, but if she needs to believe that this is a sign from God, who am I to tell her otherwise? Because it seems to be working.
2: Well, that is certainly, at the time, the most common interpretive framework amongst psychologists and psychiatrists. But I could see plain as day that this was a tremendously sacred moment. This was a living miracle. This was a gift. And for me to have treated it like some type of cultural diversity variable or that it's just the meaning she makes would have actually taken all of the energy and spirit out of that transformative awakening moment. I joined her. Now I did that authentically because it was my view as well that this is far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance. That there are very few people by that very same name. That the first boy she met in a year and a half since her father's passing should have the name of the father. It was was just far too unprobabilistic. It was a synchronicity. There was a deeper meaning being revealed.
5: When you're talking to people who aren't scientists, like the people who are going to hear this conversation. Someone who's skeptical, someone who doesn't have faith, who doesn't have a what they would define as a spiritual life. What do you want them to take mm-hmm. away from your research and your message?
2: I've given a number of talks to audiences who, you know, prior to seeing the science, would not necessarily consider themselves spiritual people, and in fact, they often I oftentimes hear from people, you know, I'm a skeptic, and I really pride myself on being a skeptic. Right. I'm very left brain. But when I see the peer-reviewed science that says we're naturally spiritual beings, that when we cultivate our spirituality, we're 80% less likely to be addicted, 82% less likely to take our lives, it speaks to the left side of my brain long enough to quiet down and listen to other parts of myself. In other words, Three cheers for the skeptic. Here is science, published, peer-reviewed science for skeptical audiences to begin to explore, to be curious about our own spiritual nature. And as we do, other forms of knowing, you know, at the inner table of human knowing, we all have an empiricist, a logician, an intuitive, a mystic, and a skeptic. And the skeptic is very welcome But the skeptic is not the bouncer at the door. It is not scientific to put a skeptic as a bouncer at the door. It is not more rigorous to toss out an idea before being examined in every way we are wired to be able to investigate. So I simply say to the biggest skeptic of all, you are most welcome to your own inner table of inquiry. But be sure to invite everyone else.
5: Dr. Lisa Miller, her newest book is called The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for
3: an Inspired Life. Dr. Miller, thank you. Thank you.